In this video, I'm gonna tell you exactly why Apple's brand new M1 chipset is just kicking the ever-loving silicon out of Intel right now, kicking them right out of the low-power, entry-level Macs, and, in some cases, posting results that just clown even higher-power, higher-end PCs. And I'm gonna do it right now. Sponsored by CuriosityStream with Nebula. The Mac is transitioning. to our own Apple Silicon. I, I hate backstory in videos. Whenever someone promises to explain something, but then says, but first we have to talk about, I just yell, not today, Satan, and skip ahead to the actual substance. But in this case, in this specific case, the backstory is actually important. Damn it. Because one of several common misconceptions currently making the rounds is that the M1 Apple's first custom silicon system on a chip for the Mac is a Reve board, something we should be worried or maybe even apprehensive about. And it's totally not. It's actually 11th generation. Let me explain. No, there is too much. Let me sum up. The original iPhone, the one from back in 2007, used an off-the-shelf Samsung processor just repurposed from set-top boxes. But the original iPad in 2010 debuted the A4. iPad is powered by our own custom silicon. It's got the processor, the graphics, the I.O., the memory controller, everything in this one chip, and it screams. And that same A4 also went into the iPhone 4, released just a few months later. At first, Apple licensed ARM Cortex cores, but with the A6 in 2012, they switched to licensing just the ARM V7A instruction set architecture, the ISA, and began designing their own custom CPU cores. Then with the A7 in 2014, they made the leap to 64-bit and the ARM V8 ISA. This is the first ever in a phone of any kind. I don't think the other guys are even talking about it yet. Not just with the more modern instruction set, but with a whole new clean targeted architecture that would let them start scaling up for the future. And that was a huge wake-up call to the entire industry, especially Qualcomm, which was caught absolutely flat-footed, content up until that point to just sit at 32-bit and milk out as much profit from their customers as possible. But it was also just the kick in the apps they needed to start making mobile silicon really competitive. Apple, Apple didn't let up though. With the A10 Fusion in 2016, they introduced performance and efficiency cores, something like what ARM markets as big dot little. And they did that so that continued increases in power at the high end wouldn't leave a giant battery bleeding gap at the low end. By then, Apple had also begun making their own shader cores for the GPU and then their own custom IP for half precision floating point to increase efficiency, always efficiency. And then with the A11 in 2017, they made their first fully custom GPU. The A11 was also rebranded to Bionic because in the early days, Apple had been leaning on the GPU for machine learning tasks, but that just wasn't as optimal or as efficient as they wanted it to be. So with the A11 Bionic, they debuted a new dual-core A&E or Apple Neural Engine to just take over those tasks. The Neural Engine is a study-of-the-art ultra-fast processing system. It uses our highest density computing ever. It's a dual-core design. It can perform over 600 billion operations per second. And things just kept on escalating from there until now, today, we have the 11th generation of Apple Silicon in the A14 Bionic with its four efficiency cores, two performance cores, four custom GPU cores, and 16, 
16 A&E cores, along with performance controllers to make sure each task goes to the optimal core, ML controllers to make sure machine learning tasks go to the A&E, the GPU, or the special AMX or Apple Machine Learning Accelerator blocks on the CPU, media encode decode blocks to handle heavier tasks like H.264 and H.265, audio signal processors for everything up to and including Dolby Atmos-derived spatial audio, image signal processors for everything up to and including HDR3 and Deep Fusion and Night Mode, high-efficiency, high-reliability MVNE storage controllers, not just so that writes and reads are ludicrously fast, but that you have the confidence every single photo and frame of video you take gets saved every time. And the IP literally just goes on and on and on. I've done a whole video on the A14 already, and there's lots more to come. So make sure you hit that subscribe bell and button so you don't miss any of it. At the same time, Apple was also releasing beefed up versions of these chipsets, starting with the iPad Air 2 and the A8X in 2014. This is a new version created specifically for iPad Air 2. The X as in extra or extreme. These versions had things like additional CPU and GPU cores, faster frequencies, heat spreaders, more and off-package RAM, and other changes designed specifically for the iPad, and later, the iPad Pro. And right now, these top out at the A12Z in the 2020 iPad Pro, which has two extra performance cores, four extra GPU cores, two extra gigabytes of RAM, and greater memory bandwidth than the A12 in the iPhone XS. And I say right now only because we haven't gotten an A14X yet. I mean, apart from the M1. Kinda. More on that in a thermal hot minute. Now, rumors of Apple Silicon Macs have been around basically as long as Apple's been making silicon. Rumors of iOS laptops and macOS ports to ARM. Of Apple dangling it over Intel's head like a silicon sword of Damocles to stress just how important, how overwhelmingly important Apple's product goals were to them. And the sad, the sad, simple truth of the matter is that even that turned out not to be enough. As Apple kept up the cadence of the A-series updates each year, every year, for a decade, moving relentlessly, inexorably to higher customization, higher performance, higher efficiency, and smaller and smaller die sizes to TSMC's 7 nanometer process with the A12 and now 5 nanometer process in the A14, Intel did not. They stumbled, fell down, got up, ran into a wall, fell down again, got up, ran the wrong way, hit another wall, and now basically seem to be sitting on the floor, stunned, not sure what to do or where to go next. They're just beginning, just beginning to get their 10 nanometer process successfully deployed for laptops, while they're once again retreating back to 14 nanometer on the desktop and just just throwing increased power draw at their problems which one look at any of Apple's Mac computers would tell anyone is exactly the opposite of where they need to go. Back in 2005, when Apple switched from PowerPC to Intel, Steve Jobs said it was driven by two things, performance per watt, and that there were Macs Apple wanted to make that they simply couldn't make if they stuck with PowerPC. As we look ahead, we can envision some amazing products we want to build for you, and we don't know how to build them with the future PowerPC roadmap. And that's why we're gonna do this. And that's the exact same situation and the same reason Apple is switching from Intel to their own custom silicon today. There's performance efficiency, absolutely. 
But there are also Macs that Apple wants to make that they simply can't make if they stick with Intel. When we look ahead, we envision some amazing new products and transitioning to our own custom silicon is what will enable us to bring them to life. In other words, previously, it was enough for Apple to make the software and hardware and leave the silicon to Intel. But now Apple believes they really need to push all the way down to that silicon. And just like with the iPhone and iPad, Apple isn't a commodity silicon merchant. They don't have to make parts to fit into any generic computer or support technologies they'd never use, like DirectX for Windows. They can make exactly, precisely the silicon they really need to integrate with the hardware and software that really needs it. In other words, everything that they've been doing with the iPhone and the iPad for the past decade, they can now do with the Mac. So with all of that in mind, a few years ago, a group of Apple's best and brightest just locked themselves in a room in a building took a MacBook Air, a machine that had been suffering endless delays and disappointments thanks to Intel's anemic Y-series Core M chips and connected it to a very early prototype of what would become the M1. And the rest was about to make history. The transition from Intel to Apple Silicon for the Mac was announced by Apple CEO Tim Cook at WWDC back in June of this year. Then he handed it off to Apple's Senior Vice President of Hardware Technologies, essentially Silicon. Johnny Saruji, and Senior Vice President of Software, essentially Operating Systems, Craig Federighi, to expound upon just all of it. We're designing a family of SOCs specifically for the Mac product line. That was important because Intel Macs had been using the traditional modular PC model where the GPU could be integrated but could also be discrete and the memory was separate, as was the T2 coprocessor that Apple had been using to just work around some of Intel's shortcomings. It was like a bunch of charcuterie on a board where everything had to be reached for separately. The SOC would be like a sandwich, all layered tightly together with the memory on package and Apple fabric as sort of the mayo that just tied it all together, along with a really, really big cache that just kept it all fed. Now, macOS Big Sur has incredible technologies that enable you to run a greater range of apps than ever before. A new generation of universal binaries compiled specifically for Apple Silicon, but also Intel-only binaries through a new generation of Rosetta Translation, virtual machines through Hypervisor, and even iOS and iPadOS apps, their developer is willing, maybe just to take a little bit of the sting out of losing x86 compatibility with Windows apps and bootcamp, at least for now. And what's maybe particularly poetic about all this is that back when Apple first announced the iPhone, some in the industry laughed and said pager and PDA companies had been making smartphones for years. There was just no way a computer company could walk in and take that business away. iPhone runs OS X. But of course, it took a computer company to really understand that a smartphone couldn't be grown from a page or a PDA that it had to be distilled down from a computer. Now with M1, some of the industry are laughing and saying that CPU and GPU companies have been powering laptops and PCs for years. There's just no way a phone and tablet company can walk in and take that business away. But of course, it takes a phone and tablet company to understand many modern PCs can't be cut down from the hot, power-hungry desktop parts. They have to be built up from incredibly efficient incredibly low-power mobile parts. This dramatically improves performance and power efficiency. And when that's what you do, the efficiency advantage just 
holds true. And more than that, it actually turns into a performance advantage. We are incredibly excited to announce our first step in this transition with our first chip designed specifically for the Mac. And we call it M1. It's a chipset that would let the MacBook Air, for example, run workloads that no one would have previously dreamed possible, not on an Intel Y series, and with battery life to spare. When trying to quickly describe M1 in the past, I've used the shorthand of like, imagine an A14X's in extra performance in graphics cores plus plus, as in plus Mac specific IP. And I'm going to stick with that. Although I think Apple would say the M series for Mac is more of a superset of the A series for iPhone and iPad. And for a long time now, Apple's been working on this scalable architecture, something that would let their silicon team be as efficient as their chipsets. And that means creating IP that could work in an iPhone, but also an iPad, even an iPad Pro, and eventually be repurposed all the way down to an Apple Watch and now up to a Mac. This fall, for example, Apple announced both the iPhone 12 and iPad Air 4, both with the A14 Bionic chipset. And sure, the iPhone 12 will hit something like the image signal processor far more frequently and more often than the iPad Air will. And the iPad Air will use its bigger thermal envelope to better sustain higher workloads like long photo editing sessions or gaming sessions. But they can both perform well on that same chipset rather than requiring completely different chipsets And that's just a huge time, cost, and talent savings. Likewise, the Apple Watch 6 on its S6 system and package is now using cores based on the A13 architecture. It includes a high-performance dual-core processor based on the A13 Bionic and iPhone 11, but optimized for Apple Watch. So advances in the iPhone and iPad benefit the watch as well. And at some point, almost certainly, we'll get an iPad Pro with an A14X. because. Making silicon for different devices is often prohibitively expensive. It's why Intel tablets are heavily performance-gated even when they require fans, and why Qualcomm is using twice-rehashed old phone chips with coprocessors for wearables. That heavy investment in integrated, scalable architecture is what's let Apple cover all these products efficiently without the complexity that would come from having to treat each one of their own products as a separate client. And it also means M1 now gets to leverage many of those same latest, greatest IP blocks as the A14. Only the implementation has to differ. For example, the compute engines are close to what a theoretical A14X would look like, with four high-efficiency CPU cores, four high-performance CPU cores, eight GPU cores, and twice the memory bandwidth and higher memory limits. But the M1 CPUs can also be clocked even higher and go to even higher memory limits iOS hasn't gone beyond six gigabytes in the iPad Pro or the latest iPhones Pro, but the M1 supports up to 16 gigabytes. Then there's the Mac-specific IP. Things like hypervisor acceleration for virtualization, new texture formats in the GPU for Mac-specific application types, display engine support for the 6K Pro Display XDR, and the Thunderbolt controllers, which lead out to the retimers. In other words, things the iPhone or iPad don't need or currently just don't have. It also means that the T2 coprocessor is just gone now because that was always really a version of the Apple A10 chipset, literally a short series of chips Apple had to make and run BridgeOS on, a variant of watchOS, just to handle the things that Intel couldn't. And all of that, just all of that is now integrated right into the M1. 
and the latest, greatest generation of all those IP as well, from the secure enclave to the accelerator and controller blocks, and on and on. The scalable architecture means it'll almost certainly stay that way as well, with all the chipsets benefiting from all the advances and investments made to any of the chipsets. To figure out how to make proper, higher performance, higher efficiency silicon for the Mac, Apple did exactly what they did to figure out how to make it for the iPhone and the iPad in the first place. They studied the types of apps and workloads people were already using and doing on the Mac. And that kicks off with Johnny Ceruji and Craig Federici just sitting in a room and hashing out priorities based on where they are and where they want to go, all the way from the atoms to the bits and back again. But it also involves just everyone on the team testing a ton of apps from popular to pro, Mac-specific and open source, and even writing a ton of custom code to throw at their silicon to test and try and anticipate apps and workloads that may not even exist yet, but are just reasonably assumed to be coming next. And on a more granular level, Apple can use their silicon to speed up the way code runs. For example, retain and release calls, which are frequent in both Objective-C and Swift, can be accelerated, making those calls shorter, which makes just everything faster. Previously, I kind of joked that the silicon team's one job was to make iPhone and iPads run faster than anything else on the planet. But it's not really a joke. And it's actually not even as specific as that. Their job is to run faster than anything else on the planet, given the thermal enclosures of whatever device they're designing against. That's what drives what they would call their maniacal focus on performance efficiency. And now that just so happens to include the Mac. I want to be clear about something else because there's a lot of misconceptions about this as well. But there's no magic, no pixie dust to the M1 that lets the Mac perform in ways that just weren't previously possible. There are just good, solid ideas and engineering. For example, just powering up a core on a low-power Intel system might burn 15 watts of power. On a higher-end system, maybe 30 watts or more. That's something unimaginable for an architecture that comes from the iPhone. In that tiny, tiny box, you're allowed single-digit burn, nothing more. That's why with previous Intel Y-series MacBooks, the performance was just so gated so always. Intel would use opportunistic turbo to try and take advantage of just as much of the thermal capacity of a machine as possible. But frequency requires higher voltage, much higher voltage, which draws more power and generates more heat. And Intel was willing to do that to goose frequency and voltage in exchange for bursts of speed. And it absolutely let them eke out as much performance as was thermally possible and post as big a set of numbers as possible. But it often just wrecked the experience and turned your desktop into a coffee warmer, your laptop into a heat blanket. With M1, there's no opportunistic turbo, no need for it at all. It doesn't matter if the M1 is in a MacBook Air or a MacBook Pro or a Mac Mini. The Silicon team knows exactly the machines they're building for, so they can build to fill those designs not as maximally as possible, but as efficiently as possible. They can use wider, slower cores to handle more instructions at lower power and with much less heat. That lets them do things like increase the frequency of the efficiency cores in the M1 to 2 gigahertz, up from 1.8, I think, in the A14, and the performance cores to 3.2 gigahertz, up from the 3.1 gigahertz in the A14. And 
even then, the efficiency cores just keep getting better and more capable. Which on their own deliver similar performance as the current generation dual-core MacBook Air at much lower power. Which, ouch. So now you have all the M1 chipsets in all the M1 machines, all capable of running at the same peak frequency. The only difference is the thermal capacity of those machines. The MacBook Air, for example, is focused on no fan, no noise. So for low power, lower workloads, single-threaded apps, its performance will be just the same as all the other M1 machines. But for higher power, higher workloads, heavily threaded apps, sustained for 10 minutes or longer, things like rendering longer videos, doing longer compiles, playing longer gaming sessions, that's where the thermal capacity will force the MacBook Air to ramp down. What that means is for a single core, M1 is just not thermally limited. Even pushing the frequency, it's perfectly comfortable. So for a lot of people and a lot of workloads, the MacBook Air's performance will be almost indistinguishable from the Mac Mini. For people with more demanding workloads, if they heat up the MacBook Air enough, that heat will go from the die to the aluminum heat spreader, then on to the chassis. And if the chassis gets saturated, the control system will force the performance controller to pull back on the CPU and GPU and reduce those clock speeds. Where on the two-port MacBook Pro, the active cooling system would kick in instead and allow those workloads to just sustain for longer. And on the Mac Mini, its thermal envelope and active cooling would basically let the M1 sustain indefinitely at that point. But it also means that now even the MacBook Air is suddenly a really high-performance system because Apple no longer has to cram a 40 or 60 watt design into a seven to 10 watt chassis. M1 lets the air be the air with performance enabled by its efficiency. One of the other big misconceptions or maybe just confusions about M1 is unified memory. It's something Apple has been using on the A-series chipsets for a long while now, but also something very different from the dedicated and separate system and graphics memory on the previous Intel Mac machines. What unified memory basically means is that all the compute engines, the CPU, GPU, ANE, even things like the image signal processor, the ISP, all share a single pool of very fast, very close memory. That memory isn't exactly off the shelf, but it's nothing radical either. Apple is using a variant of 128-bit wide LPDDR4X4266 with some customizations just like they use on the iPhone and iPad. It's the implementation that offers some significant advantages. For example, because those Intel architectures have separate memory, they weren't exactly efficient and could waste a lot of time and energy moving or copying data back and forth so it could be operated on by the different compute engines, by the CPU and GPU. Also, in low-power integrated systems like the MacBooks or other Ultrabook PCs, there typically wasn't a lot of video RAM to begin with, and now the M1 GPUs have access to just far greater amounts from that shared pool, which can lead to significantly better graphics capabilities. Things like better draws and better textures in games. And because modern workloads aren't as simple as draw, call, send it, and forget it anymore, and computational tasks can be round-tripped between the different engines, both the reduction in overhead and increase in capability really, really start to add up. That's especially true when coupled with things like Apple's tile-based deferred rendering, which means basically, instead of operating on an entire frame, the GPU operates on tiles that can live in memory and be operated on by all the compute units 
in a far, far, far more efficient way than traditional architectures allow. It's more complicated to do, but it's ultimately higher performance, at least so far. We will have to see how it scales beyond the integrated graphics machines and to the machines that have had more massive discrete graphics up until now. How much that translates into the real world can also vary. For example, for apps where developers have already implemented just a ton of workarounds for the Intel and discrete graphics architectures, especially where there hasn't been a lot of memory before, we may not see the impact from M1 until those apps get updated to take advantage of everything M1 has to offer, other than absolutely still getting a benefit from the increase in performance of all those compute engines. For other workloads, it could well be just day and night. We built macOS on Apple Silicon to use the same data formats for things like video decode, GPU, and display. For example, for things like 8K video, the frames get loaded quickly off the SSD and into unified memory. Then, depending on the codec, they'll hit the CPU for ProRes or one of the custom blocks for H.264 or H.265, have effects or other processes run through the GPU, and then go straight out through the display controllers. And all of that would previously have involved just copying back and forth through the subsystems and just be all shades of inefficient. But now it can all happen on an M1 machine, an ultra low power M1 machine. So yes, unified memory won't suddenly turn eight gigabytes into 16 gigabytes or 16 gigabytes into 32 gigabytes. RAM is still RAM and macOS is still macOS. And unlike iOS, macOS doesn't deal with memory pressure by just jetsiming apps. It has memory compression and machine learning-based optimizations and ultra-fast SSD swap, which, no, will not adversely affect your SSD any more on M1 today than it has on Intel for the last 10 years or so. Apple and everyone else has been doing it. But the architecture and software will make everything just feel better. Make that RAM be literally all it can be. One of the problems Apple knew they were going to face with moving to the M1 was that some apps just weren't going to be available as unified binaries, meaning those apps which were originally designed to run on the Intel architecture wouldn't be ported over to also run on the M1 architecture, at least not in time for launch. And for some, maybe not for a good long time. So where they had original Rosetta to emulate PowerPC on Intel, they decided to create Rosetta 2 for Intel and Apple Silicon. But back then, Apple had no direct control over the Intel chips. They could push Intel into making chips that would fit into the original MacBook Air, for example, but they couldn't get them to design chips that would run PowerPC binaries as efficiently as possible. Now, though, Apple does have direct control over their own silicon, and they've had years for the software team to work with the silicon team to make sure M1 and future chipsets would run Intel binaries absolutely as efficiently as possible. And Apple hasn't elaborated much on what exactly they're doing in terms of specific Rosetta acceleration IP. But it's not hard to imagine that Apple looked at areas where Intel and Apple Silicon behave differently and then built in extra bits specifically to anticipate and address those differences as efficiently as possible. And that means there's nowhere nearly the performance hit, the penalty there'd otherwise be with a traditional emulation. And for Intel binaries that are metal-based and GPU-bound, because of M1, they can now run faster on these new Macs than the Intel Macs they replaced, which just takes a moment to wrap your brain around. 
Again, no magic, no pixie dust, just hardware and software, bits and atoms, performance and efficiency, working incredibly closely together, smart choices, solid architecture, and systematic, steady improvements year after year. There's this other misconception, maybe reductionistic, maybe myopic, where people are just looking for one thing that explains the difference in performance efficiency. Pretty much every test has now shown between M1 Max and the same exact Intel machines they replaced, sometimes even then much higher-end Intel machines. And there just isn't one. It's no one thing. It's everything, the entire approach, each part obvious in hindsight, but the result of a lot of big architectural investments paying off over the course of a lot of years. And I know Apple got dunked on just heavily for those Bezos-style graphs during the M1 announcement. Some even called it a lack of confidence on Apple's part, even though they were basically comparing M1 against the top-end Tiger Lake part at the time, then basically walking over and just dropping their own M1 die shot right on the table right after the event, which is pretty much as confident as you can get for a new PC silicon platform. But those graphs were still based on real data and showed the real philosophy behind M1. Apple wants to make balanced systems where CPU and GPU performance complement each other and have the memory bandwidth they need to support them. They don't care about Deadpool-style maximum perf in terms of a spec sheet number, not if it comes at the expense of efficiency. But because of the efficiency, even modest increases in performance can feel significant. And they're not architecting for the numbers, for the highest right point on those graphs, but for the experience. They're just opportunistically getting those numbers and a pretty good point on those graphs as well, at least so far on these lower power chipsets. By relentlessly going after the highest efficiency, Apple has ended up making some of the highest performance as well. It's not the goal, but it's become the consequence. And it's been paying off in the experience where everything just feels far more responsive, far more fluid, far more instantaneous than any Intel Mac has ever felt. Also in battery life, where doing the same workloads results in mind-bogglingly less battery drain. You can just hammer on an M1 Mac in ways beyond what you could ever hammer on an Intel Mac and still end up with way more battery life left on the M1. M1 was built specifically for the MacBook Air, the two-port MacBook Pro, which I have semi-jokingly referred to as the MacBook Air Pro, and a new silver, again, lower power Mac Mini. And I think that last one, mostly because Apple exceeded even their own expectations with M1 and did it because they realized they could do it and not force desktop stands just to wait until a more powerful chipset was ready for a more powerful space gray model Mac Mini. But there are more than just these Macs in Apple's lineup. So even though we only just got the M1, the moment after we got it, we were all already wondering about M1X or whatever Apple calls the chipset that comes next. The silicon that'll power the higher end 13 or 14 inch MacBook Pro and the 16 inch, that space gray Mac mini, and at least the lower end iMac as well. And beyond that, the higher end iMacs and eventually the Mac Pro sometime within the next 18 months, if not sooner. Because as impressive as the M1 chipset is, as Apple's 11th generation scalable architecture has performed, it is still the first custom silicon for the Mac. 
It's just the beginning, the lowest power, lowest end of the lineup beginning. Because Johnny Saruji's graphs weren't marketure. We can look at them and see how exactly Apple is handling performance efficiency and where the M series will go as it just continues up that curve. And back at WWC, Johnny said a family of SOCs. So we can imagine what happens when they cruise past that 10 watt line, when they go beyond eight cores to 12 cores and more. And also what this means going forward for Apple's M series and the Macs that they power. Will they be kept up to date with the iPhones like the iPads have, getting that latest, greatest silicon IP the same year or shortly thereafter? In other words, will M2 follow as quickly as A15 and so on? Apple's silicon team just doesn't get to take a year off. Every generation, they have to improve. That's the downside of not being a merchant silicon provider, of not just targeting peak performance on paper or having to hold back on the top line just to satisfy the bottom line. The only thing Apple Silicon team is just ever willing to be gated by is time and physics, literally nothing else. And they have 18 months left just to get started, which is pretty much what Jonathan Morrison and I just discussed in our M1 two week later review collab, including the extended version where we dive into some of the hottest of the hot takes surrounding M1. And you can catch that extended version and more bonus content on Nebula. That's the streaming platform I'm building along with my education e-creator friends, Alex, a low-spec gamer, Jordan Harrod, TechAlter, Epos Vox, Real Engineering, Real Science, and many, many more. It's a place where I can put up those extended and bonus cuts without having to worry about demonetization or the tyranny of the click-through rate, watch time, the algorithm, even ads. You can find all of my videos there completely ad-free including Georgia Dow and my new podcast, Apple Talk, which also has a bonus topic only available on Nebula. So what does any of this have to do with CuriosityStream? Well, as a go-to source for the absolute best documentaries on the internet, they just love educational content and educational creators. And we worked out this deal where if you sign up for CuriosityStream with the link in the description, not only will you get CuriosityStream, but you'll also get a Nebula subscription for free. And... For a limited time, CuriosityStream is offering 26% off all of their annual plans. And 26% off is just the best deal you'll find anywhere. So click on the link in the description and get CuriosityStream for 26% off plus Nebula for free. Or you can go to curiositystream.com slash Renee Ritchie. It's a great way to support this channel and educational content directly for just $14.79 per year. Per year. Just click on the link in the description or go to curiositystream.com slash Renee Ritchie. And clicking on that link just really helps out this channel. For a ton more, just a ton more on Apple Silicon Macs, click on the playlist above. I'm doing in-depth analysis, reviews, and so much more to come. So click on the playlist and I'll see you next video.